This week's episode is actually a video. If you prefer to listen to the audio-only version, you can just keep listening to this right here and now. But if you want to watch the video, look in the show notes for a link or go to discomfortable.net. Getting Discomfortable with Mean Girls, Part 1. Shame and Belonging. I'm 16, and until today, I was homeschooled. This is Katie. And this little introductory montage really sums up the theme of the film and Katie's goal throughout the film, and that is belonging. I know what you're thinking. Homeschooled kids are freaks. X-Y-L-O-C-A-R-P. Xylocarp. Or that we're weirdly religious or something. And on the third day, God created the Remington Bull Action Rifle so that man could fight the dinosaurs and the homosexuals. Amen. But my family's totally normal. Incidentally, belonging is also the theme of our lives and the goal of every single person. We are a pack animal. Humans are designed to exist in groups. Everything in our evolution, in our physiology, in our psychology is geared towards belonging. That is one of our most basic and important human needs, if not the most important. But my family's totally normal, except for the fact that both my parents are research zoologists and we spent the last 12 years in Africa. But then my mom got off her tenure at Northwestern University. So it was goodbye, Africa, and hello, high school. And in the absence of belonging, there is always shame. Shame is that horrible, unpleasant, sickening feeling in your gut that says there's something different about you. And that difference makes you bad. And that badness means that you are and perhaps always will be alone, outside of the group, isolated, alienated. That is the worst feeling that a social animal can feel. I don't know if anyone told you about me. I'm a new student here. My name is Katie Heron. Talk to me again and I'll kick your ass. (laughs) Shame. Right off the bat, shame. In fact, you'll find that throughout this movie, and in fact in most comedies, the root of the humor is shame, or embarrassment, or humiliation, both of which are on the shame spectrum. Most comedy is based in shame. One of our natural reactions to shame is this nervous laughter. And when we see shame enacted in someone that we know isn't us, when we see the artifice of comedy, of film, it gives us enough distance that we can laugh even more easily at that shame. It's worth noting that shame is an externally referenced emotion. That means that it's always in relation to other people. The audience in that classroom watching Katie walk around making all of these mistakes, that is where the shame comes from. It is their perceived judgment, laughter, criticism, scorn, disrespect that triggers shame inside of Katie and inside of us. 
Shame can't exist inside of a vacuum. Even if you feel shame when you're on your own, it's because you're imagining the judgment, scorn, and disrespect, laughter of other people. In fact, throughout this movie, everything Katie says in a classroom, if you listen, there is a laughter added into the soundtrack so that we know that other students are watching her and judging her, and that is where the shame and the humor and the humiliation and the embarrassment all comes from. The first day of school was a blur. A stressful, surreal blur. I got in trouble for the most random things. Where are you going? Oh, I, I have to go to the bathroom. You need the lavatory pass. Okay, can I have the lavatory pass? <laughs> nice try. Have a seat. I had never lived in a world where adults didn't trust me, where they were always yelling at me. Don't read ahead. No green pen. No food in class. This is a period of conditioning. Katie, like any child who's just been born into the world, is looking around and learning the rules. And what's so interesting about the rules is that they feel so true. They feel so objective and real because of the intense shame that they bring up in us. But actually, the rules are arbitrary. Any school that she goes to is going to have different rules in any different country. And coming from Africa, she had a whole set of rules that no longer make sense anymore. So Katie needs to learn a whole new set of cultural norms in order to fit in, in order to belong, and in order to avoid shame. I had a lot of friends in Africa. Jumbo! Uh, What? But so far, none in Evanston. This is a perfect example of shame. We would rather hide than be seen alone in public. Because being seen alone in public like that, you know, at a party or in a cafeteria, says we don't have any friends. And if we don't have any friends, that means there must be something wrong with us, which means shame. Why do we have shame? Though it's a social function, it's actually about survival. Because as a social animal, we survive the best when we are in a group. So shame evolved to motivate us to stay in the group using the negative reinforcement of a very unpleasant feeling. Because back in the day when we were hunter-gatherers, being kicked out of the group literally meant that we would die. We could not survive on our own. We also have positive reinforcements, like the amazing feelings of love and connection and joy and the amazing feeling of belonging. It's all geared towards our survival, and that's the important thing to remember about shame. Even though shame is really unpleasant and now completely detached from survival, because we live in a modern world where our survival is all but guaranteed, you can remind yourself that it's really about survival, and that's what makes shame so powerful. We spend our lives trying to avoid that unpleasant feeling by fitting into the group at any cost. And that's what this film is all about. Where's the back building? It burned down in 1987. Won't we get in some sort of trouble for this? Why would we get you into trouble? We're your friends? I know it's wrong to skip class, but Janice said we were friends, and I was in no position to pass up friends. Once again, belonging is key. Belonging trumps the rules, because belonging is the ultimate goal. This is the core of what Katie is looking for. Friends.
have sex, because you will get pregnant and die. Don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it. Promise? Aside from being a delightfully accurate skewering of the abstinence-only sex education programs that are popular in the U.S., this is also a powerful form of conditioning. By controlling education, by controlling the message, you can shame children into doing what you want. You can shame them into adopting your morals. And that is exactly what they are trying to do here. By making sex bad, 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 by connecting it with an emotion of rejection, of judgment, of scorn, of disrespect, it creates an association inside of these students that when they think of sex, shame may pop up. Okay, everybody take some rubbers. Why don't they just keep homeschooling you? They wanted me to get socialized. Will you look at Karen Smith's gym clothes? Of course all the plastics are in the same gym class. Who are the plastics? They're teen royalty. If North Shore was Us Weekly, they would always be on the cover. So up until now, Katie's been learning the rules from the teachers. But this is the moment where she starts to get into the rules of the students, the social rules. And we quickly discover that like most high schools, it is based in hierarchy. That means that there are cool kids and there are popular kids and there are uncool kids and there are unpopular kids. And the ones who are cool and popular are more valuable and more desirable and more lovable and have more belonging, or so it seems. Um, what's happening? And evil takes a human form in Regina George. I'll be fooled, because she may seem like your typical selfish, backstabbing, slut-faced hoe bag, but in reality, she is so much more than that. She's the queen bee, the star. Those other two are just her little workers. Regina George. How do I even begin to explain Regina George? Regina George is flawless. She has two Fendi purses and a silver Lexus. I hear her hair is insured for $10,000. I hear she does car commercials in Japan. Her favorite movie is Varsity Blues. One time she met John Stamos on a plane. And he told her she was pretty. One time she punched me in the face. It was awesome. It's a kind of celebrity obsession culture where everyone worships and looks up to the people at the top of the hierarchy. We elevate the people at the top by trying to be like them, by idolizing them, by talking about them. And it plays right into our shame. Because shame as a feeling makes you feel like you are bad, it immediately raises the possibility that if you are bad, someone else must be good. So you look out and you decide who is good based on how popular or successful they appear or how happy. And then you try to conform with them. You try to fit in with those groups that appear to be successful, that appear to be popular, that appear to have a lot of belonging, which we crave. So hierarchies are built on shame. Shame is what creates that feeling of a binary between people who are good and people who are bad, people who have value and people who don't have value, people who are worthy and people who aren't worthy, people who belong and people who don't belong, people who are lovable and people who are not lovable. Of course, none of it is real. None of it is true objectively. There aren't actually people who have less value than other people. It's a fictional hierarchy of human value that we not only buy into, but we co-create. 
everyone in this montage is co-creating this fictional hierarchy of human value and placing themselves somewhere along it, assigning themselves a certain value. I'm not as cool and worthy and popular and lovable as Regina, but I'm not as uncool and unworthy and unpopular and unlovable as, say, this group of so-called desperate wannabes. And the goal when you buy into this fictional hierarchy of human value, of course, is to try to earn or prove that you have as much value as possible, to try to climb up the ladder of worthiness, to try to reach the top of the hierarchy. And it seems that at the top right now is Regina George. This map is gonna be your guide to North Shore. Now, where you sit in the cafeteria is crucial because you got everybody there. You got your freshmen, ROTC guys, preps, JV jocks, Asian nerds, cool Asians, varsity jocks, unfriendly black hotties, girls who eat their feelings, girls who don't eat anything, desperate wannabes, burnouts, sexually active band geeks, the greatest people you will ever meet, and the worst. Beware of the plastic. As you can clearly see, when you exist inside this fictional hierarchy, you want to label people so that you can easily categorize them. If you put all of the Asian nerds in one group and all of the so-called hot Asians in another group, you are easily able to see their position on the hierarchy. Even Katie's new friends, who we will later discover are labeled as the art freaks, have bought into this system, have bought into this hierarchy. They are perpetuating the problem just as much as the popular kids at the top, like the plastics. Katie is essentially being brainwashed into this new system, which actually has no objective reality to it except inside the heads of these students. And at the base of it, supporting it all, is... Shame. Wait. Sit down. Seriously, sit down. Why don't I know you? I'm new. I just moved here from Africa. That's really interesting. Thanks. But you're like really pretty. Thank you. So you agree? What? You think you're really pretty? Oh, I don't know. Oh my god, I love your bracelet. Where did you get it? Oh, my mom made it for me. It's adorable. And there you have it. This whole movie, this whole premise, hinges on the fact that for random genetic reasons, Katie happens to be considered attractive in this culture. Simply because of how she looks, she catches the eye of the queen of the plastics, Regina George. Because like everyone else, Regina has bought into the fictional hierarchy of human value. And even though, by all accounts, Regina is at the top, that is because she works diligently to stay at the top. Regina believes deeply that her value as a person, her worth and lovability, depends completely on the opinions of other people. As long as other people believe that she's the queen bee, believe that she's the most popular, even if they don't like her, that is what gives Regina her feeling that she really is worthy and lovable, even if, ironically, no one actually loves her. Okay, you should just know that we don't do this a lot, so this is like a really huge deal. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. 
So as soon as Regina sees Katie, she sees a threat. Katie is like a total babe. And like any savvy leader, Regina wants to keep her friends close and her enemies even closer. Katie could become more popular than Regina. Katie could steal Regina's value. Because it is a hierarchy, you can't share value. You can maybe be on the same level as someone, but ultimately, if you're trying to be at the top, you cannot share the top in a tie. You need to be better than everyone else. So Regina is constantly on the lookout, constantly working to ensure her position at the top of the hierarchy. Because she comes from a culture, in fact, I think we all come from this culture, that says that you need to be extraordinary in order to be valuable, in order to be worthy, in order to be lovable, in order to be respected. You need to be the best, or you need to be as high as you can possibly be. And that is a very frightening and precarious position that you constantly need to defend. And that is exactly what Regina is doing in this scene. She's inviting Katie into their group so that she can control Katie, so that she can actually get value herself out of Katie, and at the same time ensure that Katie stays below her. Having lunch with the plastics was like leaving the actual world and entering girl world. And girl world had a lot of rules. You can't wear a tank top two days in a row, and you can only wear your hair in a ponytail once a week. So I guess you pick today. Oh, and we only wear jeans or track pants on Fridays. Now, if you break any of these rules, you can't sit with us at lunch. Well, I mean, not just you, like, any of us. Okay, like, if I was wearing jeans today, I would be sitting over there with the art freaks. Oh, and we always vote before we ask someone to eat lunch with us because you have to be considerate of the rest of the group. Well, I mean, you wouldn't buy a skirt without asking your friends first if it looks good on you. I wouldn't. Right. Oh, and it's the same with guys. Like, you may think you like someone, but you could be wrong. These rules, probably concocted by Regina herself, are a form of control. If you don't do what she says, if you don't conform, you are literally kicked out of the plastics. It is a perfect embodiment of what shame tries to convince us is true. If we don't conform, if we don't act like everyone else, we will be kicked out of the group and we will essentially die sad and alone. Being at Old Orchard Mall kind of reminded me of being home in Africa, by the watering hole, when the animals are in heat. This is an apt comparison because it is literally true. We are still governed by shame and our most primal emotions and instincts as if we were hunter-gatherers. Though we live in this modern society that is completely different, all of our programming is still exactly the same as it was back then. Shame doesn't make as much sense in the modern world. Getting rejected from our in-group doesn't mean death anymore, even if it is our family, even if it is our best friends. We live in such an interconnected world that we can always find other people. We can even find a chosen family. And we have all of these support systems to keep us alive, even if we are completely lonely. But shame still feels so unpleasant and powerful and motivating because we are genetically and instinctually identical to back when we were hunter-gatherers where shame literally kept us alive. 
And because shame is connected to survival, it is connected to the most primitive part of our brain, our amygdala and our limbic system, also known as the lizard brain and the animal brain. It is our neocortex and our prefrontal cortex that are the most recent and modern parts of our brain, and they are the parts that allow us to do logical, rational thinking. So when we feel shame, it actually takes us out of those modern logical parts of our brain and sticks us right back into our animal and lizard brain threat response reactions. So when we feel shame, we literally turn into cavemen. Check it out, Katie. It's our burn book. See, we cut out girls' pictures from the yearbook, and then we wrote comments. Trang Pack is a grotsky little biatch. Still true. Don Schweitzer is a fat virgin. Still half true. (laughs) When you buy into a culture of hierarchy, gossip and backstabbing becomes a very important function in sorting people's position on the ladder. Gossip is spread in order to figure out who belongs where on the hierarchy, and backstabbing is used to push people down the hierarchy below you. And at the same time, it's what Brene Brown calls hot-wired connection. When we gossip, when we share secrets, when we say things to someone that we're not supposed to say, it can build rapport. It can feel like a special trusting relationship. But then you start to realize, ironically, wait, are they also sharing my secrets with everyone else? Secrets represent our shame. We don't want other people to know about our shame. We don't even want to admit to having shame because it makes it look like we really are different, bad, and alone. So we keep those sources of shame secret. But when you know people's secrets, you can use that shame as a weapon against them. You can use it as a currency to control people. And this burn book serves this exact function. It reminds the girls in the plastics how much better they are, quote unquote, than everyone else. And they have this book, this burn book, where they write mean things about all the girls in our grade. What does it say about me? You're not in it. Those bitches. And perhaps the biggest burn of all, the biggest shame, is not to have been insulted, but to have been left out altogether. To be continued next week in part two 